Yo, Matt, I got to tell you a story. All right, let's hear this one. Okay. Allie, she's 32 years old. She gets a text at 4.55 on a Friday. It's Randy, her boss. He's 62. The text says, got five minutes to chat on Zoom? (laughs) (laughs) Allie knows what this means, but she sends the Zoom invite anyway. Randy answers, and he says, Allie, I know it's late, but we got the go-ahead to send the renewal contract to our top client. The client requested a few tweaks to the contract terms. Can you make those adjustments over the weekend so it's ready to be signed by Monday? Allie tells Randy that she's scheduled to travel this weekend, and she's had this plan for months. Randy goes, but can't you connect to Wi-Fi? This is your job and our company. When I was in your position years ago, then Allie blurts out, look, Randy, I'm just acting my wage. Ooh. At this moment, they both know. This is an act of war. Who's right? Who's wrong? Today on The Lonely Office, it's Boomer versus Millennial. Yeah. I mean, this is generational warfare going on here. I'd love to try to break down the stereotypes that are out there between Boomers and Gen Z, because I think there's just so much confusion that's fraught about these stereotypes and about the true working relationship between the Boomer and Gen Z. Yeah, I can't wait. And first, before we do that, though, I'm really happy to have Leia back on the podcast by popular demand, by the Aww. way. Yeah, people were <laughs> like, hey, we need more Leia. So glad to have you back. Well, I'm glad to be back, guys. We all know that you're a force on TikTok. I think it's plus 130,000 now. It's 144.3, but I don't really keep track. <laughs> Exponential growth. This is incredible. <laughs> So before we tap into the stereotypes here, why don't we go around and just talk about where we stand on the spectrum? Leah, where do you stand in terms of the generation? What's your generational name? Well, I'm about to turn 39. I might be 39 by the time this airs. So I'm definitely an elder millennial. I think we should also establish up front that generations are stupid. <laughs> it's a construct <laughs> that was made for marketing, really, to kind of put yeah. everyone in groups that were easy to understand. And now it's become like a thing people talk about on social media all the time as a way to insult each other. But I mean, there is some truth. There are some blanket similarities and differences between the generations, obviously. They're also kind of silly. That's a really insightful remark. It's almost like an insidious inception that these marketers have done of like, hey, we're going to make these like caricatures out of you and you're going to believe them. And you know, you're going to play into them because it makes our jobs easier. And we can measure you and sell to you in an easier way. Where do you stand, Matt? I have debates with my wife on this all the time. She's stably in the millennial demographic. And I like to think I'm on that cusp. I think there's like a 1980 threshold that puts you in one or the other. So I like to claim both hats, millennial generation and the Gen X generation. And there's a term for it. It's called Xennial. I think we're along the same lines here because I am 39 going to turn 40 here. I would say, even though there are these heightened stereotypes, constructs that you talk about, Leah, you know, and we're going to get into this, I've been feeling more of that divide. Now, what I'd love to discuss when we figure out here is, is that real? Is it just marketing? Is it just perception? Or is the divide something we can bridge? We all are in a unique position here in that Xennial space to sort of straddle those two experiences. I heard there was another not as official term, the Oregon Trail generation. (laughs) I like to say Xennial, but I also am part of the Oregon Trail generation. I mean, so much of this battle is happening on the digital landscape, as Leah talked about. And 
when we started, we were using like Tandy computers with games like Oregon Trail in elementary school. I didn't have a cell phone until I was a freshman in college. I was still using a rotary phone to call my friends. I know all of their numbers with the area code. Then it was like, boom, everything shifted. So I think we have a unique position as Zennials to talk about this. So let's dive into, Matt, you gave a TED Talk and you highlighted some of these specifically. I'd love for you to start and just kind of talk about some of the things that you've gleaned Yeah. Preparing for that talk, we just mined the millions of conversations on Fishbowl, and and we were really surprised to see the percentage of them that have to do with relationship dynamics between individuals, namely older generational buckets, let's call it boomers, and younger generational buckets, let's call it, you know, millennials and Gen Zers, and the issues that they're stressing on within Fishbowl. As a result of that, I think there was a few themes that really kind of crystallized for us. The first was there's a stress on the working relationship between the so-called boomer and, and this younger generation, Gen Z or millennial. And namely, the stereotype that let's call boomers or the older generation is applying to the younger workforce is one where these young associates, they're coddled, they're fragile, or they're part of a self-entitled generation. And I'm, I'm purposely picking up on words that were actually written Uh, And And this is coming from the boomer generation is what you're saying. This is coming from the boomer generation. They're part of a self-entitled generation that just unaccustomed to do, quote unquote, hardcore work. You know, what's interesting about that word hardcore, we're two months away from the incident, of course, the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. His principal statement upon acquisition was, if you're not willing to do hardcore work, leave. And stereotyping the younger generation as they don't have the ability to do hardcore work. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It might mean sleeping under your cubes or showering at work or whatever it is. That's the stereotype that's prevalent within the minds of the older generation applying to the younger generation. And this is not just on Fishbowl. I was in a Uber ride where I just happened to find myself with someone who's probably in his 60s, mid-60s, former executive salesman. And he was talking about his, his kid who had just moved to Austin, complaining about his workload. And he was calling on terms like quiet quitting and coasting and acting your wage and just complaining about the younger generation. So like, I think this framing or these stereotypes go beyond the bubbles of a professional platform. It's really broadly prevalent on a social society level. That's the stereotype that I've gleaned. So what about this then? So you kind of fleshed out the Randy character here in terms of how that boomer generation stereotypically views millennials, zennials, or younger generation, right? How about now let's flip it to Allie's generation, which is probably more aligned with ours. We even can go back to the beginning of the story, right? Where it's like, hey, this is your job. Can't you just spend the weekend doing this? What's wrong with you? I put in time when I was a kid. What are the stereotypes that you're seeing coming from zennials, from millennials and younger generations of boomers? Having analyzed a lot of the conversations in preparation for this TED Talk, it crystallized really into, I'm trying to put this way, it doesn't sound generic in marketing, but the younger workforce does not ascribe empathy to the older workforce. They don't believe they're inherently empathetic. And they look at the way that generation, namely the 60s, 70s, 80s generation, the way they've been maybe financially rewarded over a period of 20, 30 years of wages and maybe reinvestment in the stock market. They just believe that there's a lot of entitlement they've had where they've seen their bank balances grow over time. And that's the reason why they may be loyal to the company. And and it's not for some of the reasons that they cite to their younger workers, which is you should be loyal because you care 
or you should be loyal because our mission is significant. And so it's kind of this cynical take of sorts, which ultimately resolves around the fact that the younger workforce does not ascribe much empathy to the older workforce. And they feel that most of their interests are really just driven by transactional interests that they've accrued the benefit of. As a younger workforce now, they believe that they're not in the same position to accrue that benefit. So let's dig into both of those stereotypes. The one theme that I'm hearing is loyalty to the company. There's a huge divide in the perception of loyalty to the company. Leah, what is your take on this sort of back and forth about one generation being more loyal and the other one being more transactional? That stereotype is probably fair. The older generation is going to be more loyal to the company because they grew up during a time where you sort of worked your way up and you didn't job hop. But I don't think that that necessarily translates to millennials. If we're specifically talking about millennials and boomers, millennials working less. That has not been my observation in the workplace at all. And I think a lot of these quiet quitting, acting your wage, bare minimum Mondays. That's a new one, bare minimum Mondays. I, I, oh, yeah. You haven't heard about that one? <laughs> Bring us up to speed. So it's where you go in on Monday and you do as little as, as physically possible while still getting your work done. But I think those were all a reaction to hustle culture and millennials working, 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 laying it all bare for the company, then finding out the company wasn't necessarily loyal to them. But if you're treating someone well, and then you're like, look, we're in a crisis. Can you work over the weekend? My experience, and maybe it's just my inherent likability, is that people will <laughs> do that for you in that instance, but they have to have been treated well leading up to that point. Allie clearly is already feeling overworked because she's saying, I have to take the weekend to recharge and disconnect from work. Great when take. Typically, that's what a weekend is for every weekend. Is it just about the way he had historically treated her? Or is there also something about just the presumption maybe Allie has about why Randy is loyal in the first place? And pull another quote, boomers had lots of benefits. If they don't pay us for loyalty, why should we give it to them for free? It is just this presumption of like, you're in the position that you're in because you've transactionally accrued a lot of benefits and comp, and that's why you work the weekends. So I guess another way of asking this question is like, is it also because they feel underpaid relative to where their boss was maybe in their shoes 20 years ago? 20 years ago, you weren't on email as much. You didn't, you probably didn't have a BlackBerry. So you weren't constantly being harassed right. by the company after hour. You went in, you did your job, you went home, you probably didn't check email or anything else remotely in the evenings or the weekend. So I don't know that you can say as a 50-year-old that your work experience in your 20s and 30s is the same as someone's work experience now. I think the millennial and probably Gen Z generation already feels like they're working at a crazier pace than boomers were at that same point in their career. I think it's a great point. One quick question I had for Leah based on what she said is, what was it called? What Mondays? Uh, minimum work Mondays? Bare minimum Mondays. Bare minimum Mondays. Bare minimum Mondays. <laughs> A lot of companies that I follow and that I even work for have every other Fridays off in, in summer and all sorts of kind of these benefits. From the older generation's POV, they probably perceive they didn't have that stuff, right? Like they certainly didn't have phrases like after wage or minimum work Mondays or summer Fridays or you name the perk and benefit. When the taps were really on and the low rate interest rate environments and the, the massages were being <laughs> distributed by, you know, Google for Google employees. The older generation, they did not have that. And so 
How much of this is just them witnessing benefits that they didn't have? And that's totally fair. And I think a lot of massages out there for these deeper, young kids. I mean, I told you guys, I've worked three different places where there were office massages. But <laughs> <laughs> if you dig deeper into that, all of these in-office perks are a way to keep people in the office more and a reaction to the fact that they have less work-life balance. The older generations was, was leaving at 5 p.m. They were working nine to five. I don't know that many people in a corporate job who work exclusively nine to five, if we're being honest. That's how I look. I mean, I also think millennials and Gen Z probably don't give boomers enough credit. Are they as good at technology as we are? No. But I mean, life experience and work experience and dealing with difficult situations, all of that, it has to be lived experience. You can't just learn that in your liberal arts undergrad education. But people feel like, oh my God, this guy's making four times more than I am and he can't even PDF a Word doc. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) So Google pretty much, when they went IPO, they published a prospectus or a statement that all IPO companies did. And they they made it pretty explicit note the marketplace that we are going to provide these perks to our employees for the exact reason you said, Leah, is that we're going to milk productivity out of them, right? We're going to become their corporate equivalent maternal, paternal you know, parents provide the, the laundry benefits and the massages and you name it, the necessity of life so that they don't worry about that stuff and they pour more energy into it. There's a cost to these perks and benefits that isn't necessarily recognized, right? And that's really expectations of more time and commitment and productivity given to the employer. I was at a restaurant last week and this woman sitting behind us, she's probably like 60s or maybe 70s was asking how much we usually tip because she was arguing with her identical twin sister about it. I was telling her, and then she was like, this tipping culture is out of control. I talked to the woman at Pete's Coffee the other day, and she told me she makes $22 an hour with tips, and that's more than I ever made in my entire life. So she was really bitter about it and didn't feel that it was fair because she hadn't made that. Obviously, a lot has happened in the last 50 years But also, I mean, that doesn't take into account that even annualized at 40 hours per week, I think that's still below what's considered the poverty line in San Francisco, making $50,000 a year for an individual, which is wild. But like, that's the city that we live in. It does seem like a lack of compassion, to your point, Matt, which I hate to say because I know lots of compassionate boomers. I say this respectfully. I think it's a lack of perspective. And I know usually it's the boomers saying, hey, millennials, you're out of touch in the sense that, listen, you go to work, you work hard. That's how you get to where you're supposed to be. You climb the ladder by putting in the extra hours and the elbow grease. By the way, I ascribe to a lot of those values. I really believe, I actually probably lean without knowing Randy. I might be more centrist in this sort of millennial versus boomer. And maybe that's the whole zenial thing, right? That's your Midwesterner sensibility. It might be. It's back again. Yeah. Yeah. It's back again. (laughs) But here's the thing. You're 67 years old and you're talking about tipping a waiter. First of all, when I waited tables, you made $2.13 an hour, like $2.13. And the rest of your wage was made on tips. So the very nature of, of how companies paid waiters and waitresses is a very American culture thing. I know that when I would be in restaurants, people from Europe would be like, wait a second, you don't pay a healthy minimum wage to your servers? It's like, no, actually what they do is they pay you like unbelievable starvation, not even minimum wage. And it's then calculated with the tips that you can get. So it's like, first of all, an understanding of how the whole waiting and tipping system begins if you haven't worked in those trenches, right? 
And also, though, it goes back to this thing about debt. Look at how much debt our generation came out of college with. And again, using that as a comparison, Matt, look, we've talked about it. I'm bullish about this. Yeah, let's double click into that. So the reason why I want to double click into that, I want to give some data here to kind of bring some meat to the this See what happens. I try to tell a story about it. Matt tries to use data. <laughs> it's like Googling behind the scenes. <laughs> I think it's around 2 million bachelor degree grads enter the workforce every year. And when you look at the debt they're burdened with, the average student borrows around $30,000 to pursue that bachelor's degree. And and this is all information from educationdata.org. 45 million borrowers have some form of student loan debt. The debate is like, well, adjusted for inflation or like looking at dollars equivalently between generations, like how much debt did a student graduate with? So if you look at the graduation year of 2021, again, from educationdata.org, in May 2021 dollars, around $31,000 average student debt graduating in 2021. And then if you look back as early as 1970, in May, $2021, it's $7,500. So it's almost like a 4X difference. And if you look at 1985, maybe they're a little younger boomer, it's $13,000. That's still like almost a 3X difference. So the numbers are very clear that on this question of debt and students graduating, yes, millennials, Gen Xers, the data shows clearly they are burdened with an onerous amount of debt that is in some cases four times or three times more than the boomer generation were burdened with. Those are just the facts, right? And this sometimes, to your point, Aaron, this point comes up, they don't necessarily couple it with the expectations once you enter a workforce, because if you're sitting with $30,000 of debt, your first job out of college, your alley, like that's playing in your mind, right? Oh, yeah. Versus you're sitting with equivalent dollars, $7,500 of debt. Maybe you will be more pleasant to your boss because you're not in the hole, $30,000. When also you're not living large, making $35,000 a year or $40,000 a year. When you have that much debt, your boss is going, well, what if when I made $40,000 a year, I felt like I could do anything. I could buy a split level in a suburb. You know, it's, it's just a completely different situation. Oh, yeah. And if you don't have a robust 401k plan comparative to like your dad or your grandpa, but you do have massages, it's lipstick on a pig. <laughs> I empathize with Ali on one hand here because I totally know and have lived it. Don't come at the work ethic. I can see how they would because when you look at that circumstance of having less debt, things are less expensive and you're making more and you're able to save more. You have the luxury. One, it's quicker to pull those bootstraps up. Number two, you have the luxury of being strategic. Yeah, I'll put my time in. Yeah, I'll do grunt work. Yeah, I'll sleep on the floor. I'll do the caffeine IV because I know the long game favors me. Whereas if you're of this generation from Allie's perspective, it's like, I can't really see the long game. And all I can see that I'm working more and more. My quality of life is going down and down. And Randy's asking me to work on the weekend. F that. The best way to get a raise in promotion is to move to another job. Most workplaces now don't do an inflation bump. There's not a yearly raise, but you get a raise when you get a promotion. You're only going to get promoted so many times. That's a great point. I mean, our rents increase year to year. If you're renting in New York City or you're renting in San Francisco, you can bank on the fact in a normal economic environment, your rent is going to increase because of inflation. But your wages, even if you're like a neutral to you know above neutral performing worker, will not increase by default because of inflation. You have to overperform. That's what a promotion is. You're overperforming and, and you're getting rewarded. 
there's just this baggage, this additional burden that the, again, the millennial, the younger generation is entering the workforce with. And I think that's really crystallized in this debate, President Biden's plan to pause student payments, kind of cancel student debt altogether, and it's being challenged by the Republican Party and the Supreme Court. But I think that's why it's high stakes for the younger workforce. So considering the stereotypes we've just fleshed out, right or wrong, good or bad, but just what we see, let's go right to Allie here. Look, for both of you, she gets the text, first of all, at 4.55 on a Friday. Of course. I mean, you know, it's 4.55. Come on, Randy. That's also anticlimactic <laughs> on Randy's part. It goes on to say in the story, she knows what that means. Allie ends up blurting out, hey, I'm just acting my wage. But you said it earlier. I think it's really important. There's a lot of subtext here. Let's make the case for her. Is she positioned to be the winner who's right in this debate? My first thought was, why did she have to set up the Zoom link? Why couldn't he send her a Zoom link or just call her if he's texted her? That's a great point, Leah. All of this intergenerational conflict, I think a lot of it has to do with communication styles. And if I was Allie, my irritation would have been that it wasn't, there wasn't an immediate acknowledgement of, this is tough. This is crappy. This is unfair. I don't want to ask you to do this. If I could do it instead and just do, and, and and not have to come with you, that would be my preference. But is there any way? And maybe that's just me being too apologetic and being a woman in the workplace. But that's how I would have approached and how I would have liked it to be approached. If Randy had come to me, her guard was already up. So she resists and kind of says calmly, listen, I've already had this trip planned. He pushes right past that. And actually, his first reaction is, well, you have Wi-Fi, right? Yeah. I understand her perspective where it lands at the end. Because the final thing that he says is, look, when I was your age or when I was coming up in your experience, he's about to boomer-splain it. And she, look, I'm just acting my wage. This is what we're seeing here. This story, this is a conclusion of something that's been building for a long time is what I feel. There was some sort of mention of meeting our Q1 goals too. Whose goals are those? Because in a lot of experiences that I have had, meeting Q1 goals or end of year goals, the senior brass gets a bonus for that. And the people who are down here working over the weekend don't really see the benefit of that. They don't get fired. They don't get fired. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So like maybe she's like, ah, I don't really care if you get your Q1 bonus, Randy. There's a backstory to this, is which is all the interactions Randy had with Allie or the lack of interactions they've had. And I think that's equally important. It's both the interactions they had and the interactions they did not have. And so you think about the current predicament of doing work fully remote or even half remote. There's all these rituals we're accustomed to where you're getting to know and build and engender trust with this manager of yours. It could be like some random bumping into the hallway and having a conversation with them on a bathroom break, or maybe you run into them at, at a work event and you grab a drink and you start humanizing them, right? The part of my career in life where I did that as a junior, that was the time where I started dehumanizing my boss. I was like, oh, okay, this person actually has a social life, has interests, is pretty cool. And when they made extraordinary requests for me, I took that into perspective, but that's all lost now. You don't really have that, and you're not engendering trust on a day-to-day -day in kind of this more human way because we're all working in our lonely offices, so to speak. That's an important piece here that's missing. It's kind of the larger narrative or meta-narrative is how do you engender trust? How do you score points both ways? Like if you're a manager, how do you score points with your junior when you're not interacting with them in organic ways? Everything is a choreographed conversation on Zoom. 
I mean, there are simple things you can do, though. You can send somebody a small gift on their birthday. You can set up one-on-one calls every week where it's not about you telling them what they need to do, but about you just asking them, how are you? What do you want to talk about? How do you want to best use this time? Like, I feel like the onus, to some extent, is on Randy to sort of build that relationship with the people that are working for him so that they want to do the best work. I'm being very touchy-feely, but that's... (laughs) That is no, I think I it's feel. fair. I think it's fair. He's the manager, right? It's the manager's responsibility to manage. To but he would say manage people. up. He would say that Allie needs to manage up if she's having an issue and feeling overworked. This is a really great point. What you just highlighted here in terms of what it could be is the fact that remote work may play a huge impact on this generational divide in terms of how communication happens. Are you basically saying that there is something intangible about working with people in person in which some of those chasms can be bridged? We can kind of like build bridges to connect in person better than we can remotely? Yeah. We just painted the pictures that each generation have of one another, right? The boomer looking at the millennial as a coddled, fragile generation, not loyal, uh, inability to do hardcore work. On the flip side, the Gen Zer and the millennial looking at the boomer as purely kind of transactional humanoids or whatever you want to call them. And they have no empathy and everything for them is really any loyalty they have is is simply a, a result of the financial privilege they were kind of born in the right decade, so to speak. That's the face off happening. And like the human side of me tells me anytime there's a face off of that type with that type of stakes, the only way you diffuse it is just to get to know them. Like, how do you broker peace between countries? You bring the two leaders together over a drink or a a cigar or a cup of coffee, whatever it is, and you diffuse it. And we are in presence of a physical vacuum. And how does trust develop there? Meta, Facebook just announced and they're going to do another round of layoffs. So I think it's like another 10,000 employees, but buried in that release. They also released a study they had been doing over the past three, four years. I don't know the details of it, but I know the results. They wanted to see which of their workers were most proficient at remote work. Like they were good performers in a remote environment. And some of it was really intuitive. What they found was anybody who had been onboarded physically before doing remote work, they were not only proficient, they were excelling. They were doing really well remotely. And anybody who had been onboarded or joined virtually, namely like after the pandemic, they were just really lagging. Their performance reviews, their general performance. And, you know, this is Facebook, which is one of the larger employers are there, you know, 100,000 employees. And I think that's meaningful. I think we should take an honest look at that and say, what does that mean? You're doing something nuanced here because, Matt, you're fleshing out the environment as it is. And some of the deficiencies that we're discovering, right? Because I think it's, we're in this right now. It's a developing thing. It's not as if we're looking 20 years back and we're in remote. We're in it just recently in the sense that this is kind of a new normal. But at the same time, Leah, what you're talking about, these are age-old standards. These are things in which, yeah, you can make time out. You can send a quick email. You can say, hey, let's take some time and I can just, you know, be a better manager. I think both of these things are valid. What's interesting here is what's lost in translation, because you do have the age-old traditions of how to communicate well, but clearly the technology gap, we're having a lost in translation moment where this is not always coming across in the digital remote space that that you're talking about, Matt. I was just going to say, I was talking to a friend who is a manager who was saying that basically his team was spiraling spending two hours on something that he thought would take five minutes. 
And I was like, well, can't they just ping you on Slack to clarify when you kind of like shoot these requests off? He was like, I deleted Slack from my desktop or from my laptop because it's annoying. And I don't like all of the group <laughs> chats. And so I only have it on my phone. They could text me or call me. I'm like, well, right. not everyone is comfortable texting and calling their boss for like quick one-off right. questions or follow-ups. They must really dislike that you've done that. He was like, um, they gave me really good reviews. They like me as a manager. And I'm like, and I'm sure that's still true. But like, you're not meeting them where they're at and where they need to be. So instead, they're kind of spiraling because they feel like they can't send you those quick one-off questions. And I think that it's another one of those communication barriers that exists between Gen X and millennials or Gen X and Gen Z. This is a perfect pivot point to now flesh out Randy's point of view, if we could, because I think it's fair we got to do that. I don't want to demonize Randy. I mean, I've been doing a lot of advocacy of Ali's point of view, and I can understand a lot of it. But right when you said your manager friend is about to delete Slack. I got my finger hovering over the delete button right now. (laughs) I'm actually finding myself to a certain degree in Randy's point of view, in the manager's point of view, because I am guilty of the text. Because I'm like, guys, could we just stop? There's so many messages in Slack. I will literally make a call and say, listen, let's do a two-minute call. It will avoid 45 minutes of freaking email conversation. I feel very connected to the sort of the boomer point of view here. Let's look at Randy, right? So he's just gotten this big fish client to renew. They're going to hit their quota. He's got to feel like, I just need my junior to do these two things. But now he's getting resistance. And so all he hears is Allie going, hey, I'm trying to disconnect on the weekend. And he's thinking, it's two clicks of a mouse. But he says something important here. He goes, this is your job and our company. Is it our company? Randy thinks so. I feel like I'm Ran- Randy's like all that. hands on deck, all hands on deck. <laughs> I think he might be factually incorrect on that. I mean, I guess I, we don't know what size of company is. But. We don't. Matt, you said coddled. You know, he, he must be thinking, I'm asking you to spend five minutes when you're on a road trip, go to a coffee shop, turn on your phone, click a few buttons, press enter. That's his point of view. And then can you imagine what, he, what he's thinking when she says, hey, I'm just acting my wage. <laughs> I, Aaron, I feel like you're going to be surprised because upon hearing the full story, I was kind of irritated on Randy's behalf. To be fair, I don't think he approached it in the best way. But as someone, and it's probably because I am like a cusper or whatever, and I've been managing people for a few years, I would be pretty irritated if it's this one-off situation, there's nothing we can do, we've been working towards this goal, we're so freaking close, and I'm asking you to do this thing, and you're just like, no, I'm not going to do it. I mean, what Randy's hearing is, I just don't give a shit, enough of a shit about this job to do it. But I don't know, I did kind of feel like, She can't just fucking do this one thing. (laughs) I totally sound like Randy. When I I was in my 20s, I totally would have done it. And maybe I would have complained about it in the back to everyone I know. But you wouldn't have put resistance up as far as what Randy asked. You're okay. You're not digging your heels in and going, not a chance. No, I I totally would have done it. I mean, that's I talk a big game. Who's to say he's not back next Friday? Ask him to be rescued again. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. We don't know if it's a one-off. Randy's really focused on the outcome. He just really wants this update to really close this deal, to really hit that quota, to presumably, you know, get paid a bonus, which most likely Allie's not going to see. And so back to your point about it's our company. I think this is where this younger generation, they're far more open-eyed about this. They're far more proficient 
about business structure and stock options and ownership. And they know when it's their company or not, right? For me, this hits home because I've worked in startups and I've led startups where you can offer ownership and you do to employees. And I've worked for kind of established companies, mature companies, where the level at which you do is just so minuscule that the savvy employees don't care. And it's a world of difference the way I approach my employees in both cases, right? In the case of the startup, where the upside is uncapped financially as well as emotionally, right? You're selling the dream. You know, by definition, when you hire your first five or 10 employees at a startup, you're filtering for people who do want to drink the Kool-Aid. And in fact, sometimes you interview someone who's super savvy, super qualified, but you're like, eh, this guy's a bit too mechanical. He's going to think too much about the emotional investment. And I think it's fair because success in a startup is equally about resilience emotional buy-in as it is about like how good a worker you are. And I think it's completely fair to filter for that. But because you do, if I was the manager, Randy, in a startup, I'd be like, hell yeah, I expect you to go up there and this is what you signed up for. But on the flip side, in an established company, there's no way I approach it with Randy. I approach it far more delicately. I know the value prop to the employee at established companies more work-life balance versus uncapped upside financially or even emotionally, like you're not necessarily going to change the world or your product isn't necessarily super innovative. And I kind of carefully approach the situation and use certain framings to say, this is really bad timing and you're probably not going to be able to make it. And if not, just let me know and I'll do it. And in some cases I do, I will do the work. But that's where I think the ownership piece is important. So those two differences, those two circumstances make all the difference is what you're saying in the sense that if it's a startup and it's a tight knit group and we're kind of building the rocket ship together, it's almost an expectation like, yeah, coming in on Saturday, right? Like we're all bought in, we're all drinking the Kool-Aid. And then what I'm hearing you say is that, okay, now when things expand, things begin to scale, you have a larger company, even you as a CEO, you accept the fact that Ali does not have to drink it. And most likely she won't. And you, and you have to just navigate around that. Is that kind of where your point of view is strategically? Yeah, that's spot on. Not just my point of view, like my actual, the way I've actually approached situations similar to this one, having worked in both scenarios, that, that that's just the way it is. And it's a different kind of rules of the playground, rules of the game when you work at one one firm, one type of firm or another. And I want to make it clear, it's, it's, it's definitely a financial component. It is like the the options or the RSUs or whatever, but it's also... I think emotion is a big piece here too, right? Because the, the type of persona who joins a very risky startup and foregoes the stability of a, of, of a, a paycheck from an established company, it has a different risk profile and someone who's looking for a, a bit of a ride, frankly, like, you know, and, and so I think it, the emotional component is built in too. I'm concerned about how this is playing out because I assumed Matt was going to be the bad guy in this conversation and that I was going to be the good guy. And so I don't know, maybe I need to take back some of the things I said in Randy's defense. Well, hey, I, I was the bad guy. It just, it just depends on the, the company type. Okay, so let me do this then. I'll give you a chance to maybe... Redeem myself. You can turn heel, turn face, <laughs> when, when, as those are wrestling terms. When you hear it's our company, how do you feel about that philosophical approach? Do you carry that? Like, this is our company. I feel disassociated with that. I mean, kind of building on what Matt said, I was much more in that camp as a younger employee. And then the more you see how companies work, if there's a situation where people need to get laid off, they're gone. The loyalty that you're showing the company 
you just consistently don't see coming back the other way. And that's not specific to one place I've worked. It's I just think it's just true in general. It's a business. It's not a family. It's their company. It's not our company. Even if you've got 0.00003% stock that you were given after working there for 18 months or whatever it is, I don't really relate to it's our company at all. I'll do a good job because I want to represent myself in the best way possible because I think I'm a good employee and I'm good at what I do. But not because I care what our holding company feels about our bottom line in Q1. I think there is a perspective that many boomers are trying to articulate when they say it's our company, but they're not actually saying the thing they actually mean. I bet you there's some people who are of the boomer generation listening, going like, yeah, Aaron, tell them what's going on. Tell them the truth. They're nodding their heads right now. And here's what I think they might actually be saying. Act as if it's our company. I don't think all boomers drank the Kool-Aid. I think what boomers might be trying to say here is act as if it's your company. Deep down, I know this isn't my company. Sherwin-Williams isn't my company. But I act as if it is your company. And when you do that, that helps everybody. It helps you. You move up. And I think that might be the philosophical approach they're trying to say. But is that just a different way of saying you're institutionalized yourself? <laughs> no, it's, it's I think it's an approach, though. Well, but it's also like, I think going the our jobs are on the line, like the people you care about at the company, like we're doing this so that we all know we're going to be here next quarter. That I would jump on, I would connect with. People approach, I think I would latch onto much more than do it for our company. To me, that just begs the fact that like, hey, we're trying to, institutionalize you because we're asking you to pretend. That's from the beginning. That's known, isn't it, Matt? I think I told you the story. My first serious paying job out of college or still in college was an internship at a bank. I spent two and a half months at this bank and gave them my soul as an intern. I didn't do very substantial work, but I worked really long hours. I worked till 2, 2 a.m. doing everything they asked of me, cleaning up PowerPoint decks, researching comps, you name it. And at the end of the internship, I had a feeling that like I really enjoyed the time working with the other young associates there, but I hated the job. And I felt like I was being institutionalized in a way where it's they're trying to get me to work here because the trauma I just went through along with 20 other people in bondage <laughs> or you know being held there, you know, with or not against their will, like Stockholm syndrome, whatever it is. And so my last day, I penned an email. No. I wasn't trying to tear down the house or anything. I made a quote from a favorite movie of mine, which was The Shawshank Redemption, where he says, some birds are not meant to be caged. And my point was, like, <laughs> I felt like I, I was institutionalized for these past two and a half months, and this is not good for my soul. And, you know, some birds are not meant to be caged. Thank you. I've loved all of you. Goodbye. <laughs> I love it. But off topic, would you say that that two and a half months provided you with a, an idea of the process and the structure well, it did. and yada, 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 it did. Of, like that you were able to build on to when you were then starting up startups? Well, what it taught me is, I mean, by the way, after I said that, they gave me a full-time job offer. Oh, Jesus. And <laughs> so like, <laughs> like, that's the attitude we're looking for. Some birds aren't meant to be caged. Yeah, well, that, that's flew my favorite the coop. quote. <laughs> I flew the coop. That's right. That's that it. did teach me a lot, Leah. It did. I mean, the part of the job that I enjoyed was going through this trauma with these other 23, 24-year-olds. I love that. My point here is just 
there's a presumption that the younger generation doesn't necessarily get it. So like Randy's saying, as if, right? Like, look, the, the younger generation gets it, right? They're totally, savvy yeah. and they're coming in and they know it's not their company. And they know, so you're much better off just being really honest and trying to hit on the, the framing and the points that you can actually control. Once I work at mature companies, I don't have options to offer for the startup that I just created. So what I do is like, hey, you know, join me. And if you're interested in, in launching your own startup, I'm on tap. I'm glad to kind of coach you through that. You're going to learn skills from me. I try to offer other intangibles, get these rock stars to join when I'm in a mature company, because I, I really don't find any other way to retain them or attract them. It appears as if I am, in a strange way, Randy's only ally. And guess what? I'll stand with him on this one. <laughs> I'll take the heat. It's fine. Braver man than I am. Hey, in this particular case, this is the whole point. There isn't really one winner or not. There's a lot more gray. There's a lot more lost in translation. And being in the lonely office has a lot to do with that communication being lost, being remote. I agree with you, Matt, has a lot to do with that. And it's unfortunate. And clearly, I think in this particular case, I would say Allie comes out, the roses smell a little sweeter. I don't know if I'd be like, I'm just acting my wage, but guess what? Maybe she's saying, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I'm done. And by the way, good for you to recognize that you don't want to be institutionalized. What Matt was saying, good for you to know, maybe it's time to start your own business. Maybe you realize that, you know, all birds aren't meant to be caged, Allie. Fly, fly out of your cage. Maybe this was the first step to leave the nest. But let me ask you both this to end the conversation. What happens after Allie says, I'm just acting my wage? That's part one. And part two, do you see this divide getting bigger? or smaller over the years as we get, become more acclimated to remote work? I mean, I would assume Randy has some sort of temper tantrum because he is an older male in the workplace <laughs> and says that's unacceptable and slams his laptop closed and then has to figure it out himself for the weekend. I don't know. I mean, honestly, Allie probably starts looking for another job and Randy is definitely, unfortunately, not putting her up for a promotion or advocating for her to get a raise. I mean, that's saying things like, I'm acting my wage or that's above my pay grade, unfortunately, are not great ways to increase your wage or your pay grade. Going in the future here, as we look to five, 10 years in the future, is there a bigger gap between us, between those generations? Or do we find a way where we start coming together as we get used to this remote world and, and the lonely office? The boomers are aging out. So, I mean, I don't know how, and, you know, Gen X, God only knows, we never talk about them. Who knows what they're doing? <laughs> knows if they're engaged in the workplace. Hopefully it gets better and we can all be more compassionate. I mean, state of this country and politics and conversation in the media, I don't know. I don't know if I have a lot of faith that that's going to happen. Matt, on the other hand, I know in the same vein as Jerry Maguire, you have the ability to inspire with, with one letter. Let me ask you here, so maybe to end us with a little bit of hope. Yeah, it doesn't end well with Ellie. I'm not going to comment too much on that. I think Leah hit on the nose. I mean, the writing's on the wall the moment you voice that. I think she had a lot of right to consider it. And she actually has the right to voice it as well, but she has to be prepared to face the kind of maybe unfair, but just reality. So I think this experiment that we're doing in our lonely office, I think it's an experiment and companies are still figuring it out and they're learning. A study from Facebook was just one of many studies that are going to come. And I think as it's currently unfolding, you get more of this. I can't wrap my head around how you humanize people when you don't just interact with them physically and personally. I can't wrap my head around that. I don't think you're going to get a full return to office for knowledge professionals, stress on knowledge professionals. But yeah, there'll probably be a pivot. You're spending, you know, two, three days a week or whatever it is. And 
I think if you're doing that, then I do think you can humanize the other person you're working with and get around some of these intergenerational differences and stereotypes. The divide's getting bigger in the in the lonely office. But as far as the podcast goes, I think what we begin to see here in some of the response we've gotten and the conversations we're having, I feel even just by exploring this, we've opened up a space in which we are exploring that nuance, which we are highlighting in a funny way, in an entertaining way, but also with facts and you know, which is very important as Matt always points out. I do feel that and I am an Ally and I am a Randy. And at least from this, hopefully by listening, you can see at least we're attempting to bridge that and honor both perspectives. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode and make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app and when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 